the Healthcare Activist, the podcast from the Fellows Technical Advisory Group of BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. Welcome, everybody, and hello to the BCS podcast, which is the Healthcare Hacktivist. A uh, bit of a mouthful, actually, now that I'm saying that. So maybe we might have to rethink that, you know, prize for the, the next best name, I think, coming up. But um, this is a BCS-led podcast. Um, we're going to be discussing things um, around trends, priorities, challenges, innovation, uh, general gripes and issues in, in the healthcare system in the UK and also a little bit wider um, and it is intended to be taken with a pinch of salt. So we will have people coming along with honest opinions, a little bit of a laugh, but also to get to know people um, and share some serious subjects. So thank you very much for joining. Um, I am Hema Perowitz and I am a member of BCS. I'm a fellow. I'm also a member of the FTAG, which is the Fellows Technical Assurance Group. Um, and I'm a founding member. So we were, we were created a couple of years back um, and we're trying to do things a little bit differently in BCS. So hopefully this will go down well with everyone. Um, I am extremely delighted to welcome uh, my first guest for this inaugural session. And quite honestly, I feel that I am in the presence of a few celebrities, quite, quite honestly. So I have three amazing people who are all well known in the industry, but I will do a very quick uh, overview. So I'm delighted to welcome Rachel Dunscombe, who is the CEO of Open Air International. Uh, Rachel is an industry legend. Most people know her. Um, she spent over five years as the CEO of NHS Digital Academy. She's very passionate about learning, uh, certification, um, promoting people into the right places. Um, and she's also provided advisory services to the Secretary of State for Health. She's been a member um, of the UK Government AI Council. Um, and she's also a visiting professor um, at, at, at Imperial College in London. And Quite frankly, I don't know how she fits it all in, but um, she's also very passionate about the use of data, open data and open platforms. And I'm really looking forward to speaking to, to Rachel. Thank you. Anyway, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Seema. Uh, we've also got James Davis. Um, James is also uh, in his own right uh, a legend, well known for his work of, around innovation at Royal Free. Um, but also over the last 12 months, James has now become the CEO of his own health tech company. He's very passionate about technology and healthcare innovation. Um, he seems to have been on a bit of a roadshow over the last 12 months. So every time I see James, he's in a different place, promoting innovation um, and having lots of absolutely fantastic conversations. So, James, I'm looking forward to speaking to you um, very much around your opinion on innovation in technology and healthcare. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And then lastly, but not least, um, an absolute star and legend. I think um, there's very few people who don't know Andy Kinnear. Um, Andy is a former health and care CIO. He's got more than 30 years of NHS, NHS experience um, and has led, I think, you know, various digital transformations, interoperability projects, started with analytics um, and has worked very hard, I think, regionally and nationally. Um, these days, Andy is very much working with ethical healthcare consulting where he's a founding member and he's responsible for all things partnership related. But as most people who know Andy will know, Andy's uh, passion is around certification, professionalism, healthcare in general, but also making sure that people are valued um, and that they value their own positions in healthcare. So welcome, Andy, as well. Yeah, thanks, Emma. Lovely introduction. Appreciate it. 
No, um, I, I feel like um, actually that I genuinely should have, you know, one of these Hall of Fame cards today, actually, because it's not often that we can get three legends together. So thank you all very much for your time. Um, we're going to kick off with this inaugural session, I think, um, very aptly with talking about trends and priorities in the healthcare industry this year. It's the start of the year. Um, you know, there are the usual reports coming out. There's a plethora of, of opinion out there in the market as to what's going to make it this year, what isn't going to make it. Um, and I think it'd be very interesting to get a very real life view from each of you in your areas of specialism around what you think we should be looking out for this year. So, uh, James, I'd like to start with you, if that's OK. Um, let's let's do a top three for, for each of you in terms of what you think are the trends for this year around innovation. Well, I think uh, after the introduction and being here with Rachel and Andy, I, there is a little bit of imposter syndrome. They're my heroes as well. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll give I'll give three that come to the top of my mind. And I think anybody that's tuned in for the webinar, if someone doesn't say something about AI and generative AI, then they're going to immediately switch off because it's impossible. I thought I did really well there, James. I didn't mention it in the introduction, you know. <laughs> it's impossible to ignore. Um, so I think it's it's blindingly obvious that AI, generative AI, is going to play a, a huge role in, in the coming year with healthcare. And I think it's going to be very much uh, how it's harnessed and how it's cared for ethically um, in its deployment. Um, when we spoke about this in preparation, I likened it to organizations' first utilization um, of Google and how people then use that in an intelligent way rather than just believing the first thing that came up and how Google themselves developed their algorithms to make their what they're searching for more uh, correct um, and up-to-date. So that's one area that we can dive into. Another one for me is the rise in, in wearables and personal-held devices um we have things such as the whoop that speak to our stress and our sleep and our recovery to help us live happier more healthier lives and take control of that so i think that is definitely something that's going to continue to rise and the groundwork in virtual care and virtual wards has really paved the way for that um, to continue to proliferate and and then lastly with that i think the third thing for me then is healthcare systems emphasis on data equity privacy and access. I think the the drive towards an intelligent consumer, as in a patient that understands the healthcare record and has access to it, but also a push towards healthcare systems that are open and interoperable is, yes. is a must. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with you. And I think um, there's a few interesting areas in there which I'll come back to, especially around wearables and, and the addition of even more data. But uh, before we dig into a few more questions, Rachel, can I come to you next? Let, let's hear from you what you think are your top three. Yes, and data's definitely in there. And certainly, you know, James and Andy and, you know, the three of us have talked about this really being the next industrial revolution. So the fourth industrial revolution is this kind of cognitive age where we really, you know, get the next generation of AI. And there are, you know, a number of things that are really important. We we need to look at humans here. We need to make sure that we're getting um, AI to serve our workforce and our patients. Um, and we need it to generate capacity for, you know, patients and take some of the load off our systems. We don't have enough clinicians. So a, a really big thing for me is AI, but with that human lens, right? How, how do we leverage it 
to benefit humans. Uh, and I think that's really, really important. But my second thing is really about data because AI is what it eats, right? If it eats crap data, excuse my language, um, it will basically have really bad outcomes. Um, and I've done a little bit of work around generative AI on unstructured notes versus codified notes, and it has totally different outcomes. So for me, actually, getting towards data standards, getting towards, you know, our data being well engineered is incredibly important. And I think the third thing for me, you know, after the TBH um, sort of report that we had last year, and also the, the Times Commission, we've got um, PHRs, so personal health records, and a bit like James said, it's mm -hmm. um, about you know, not just the patient contributing to that, but it's also about the apps, wearables and everything else that we can put into that, not just medical devices, but lifestyle devices as well. Um, and I think this year we're going to see some real conversations about what a PHR means, what co-ownership means, how we get the data right for that. Um, and we need to innovate in a way that will give us openness, you know, a bit like we've got open banking and banking. We need to see what this means for society as a whole. So they're the three things that I'm really thinking about at the moment. Fabulous. Thank you. And there's a load in there that we'll come back to as well. Thanks for that, for that Rachel. Andy, um, if we can come to you then for your three, please. Yeah, well, <clears throat> firstly, thank, thanks for coming to me last time. It's always great to, to have to follow um, all, all of that great content and come up with something um, original. I think um, from my point of view, I, I, and I don't want to sort of drag the mood down, but I think I think some of the priorities for this year have, are, are some of the priorities that have been the priorities for the last 20 years, frankly. So I, I still think there's a job to do to finish digitising healthcare. You know, we've still got a bundle of stuff happening on paper or happening in kind of, you know, non-digital ways that um, that we just need to finish. I mean, I'm so bored of this story and, you know, it feels like it's dominated, you know, you know, decades of my career, frankly, this this journey from uh, from paper to a, to a truly digital environment. But we're just not quite finished with it yet. Um, and so I think, you know, one way or another, we will see some rather, you know, rather dull projects in truth rolling out you know EPRs into you know into um you know into clinical settings um but nevertheless without that move to a sort of digital environment you can't really do um any of the other stuff I think what we'll see this year as well I feel like we'll start to see the um finally the shift towards true open standards begin to um begin to emerge so i think it's been you know it's been in the wings it's been in the you know it's been it's been tripping off my tongue for a decade um you know and, and sort of talking about it but i feel like it's now shifting into a place where it's becoming dominant not least because we are seeing governments uh, in the uk and the us and, and and i suspect elsewhere beginning to legislate around the the, the sort of behaviors they are going to expect from the vendor community on uh, adoption and proliferation of, of of open standards and so this is becoming far less of a sort of wish list optional type thing and it's moving into you know it's moving into an expectation um space so i think that's quite um that's quite a game changer history will determine how big 2024 was on that journey but it, these these do feel like significant milestones to me um and then i think the third area i'm interested in watching and you sort of hinted in your um introduction is around the sort of the profession and the people and the dynamics that play out in that space i think um it feels like we're in sort of a really you know tumultuous period of change 
you know, tons and tons of stuff is coming from all kinds of different directions, um, offering opportunity. It's all, you know, loads of it's exciting. It's all, you know, got the potential to, to um, you know, disrupt and change the way, uh, you know, things operate. And, you know, I think for a kind of, you know, jobbing human being, uh, working down at the front line in healthcare right now, that that can feel quite daunting, actually, in truth. Um, and so I think there's a sort of, okay, how do we, how do we nurture our, you know, our battered and exhausted workforce uh, through through this experience in a way that makes them feel, you know, empowered, uplifted, energized, and optimistic that, you know, that the new digital world can offer them real, you know, real benefits. And I think that's, you know, we're not going to see that in in twelve months, but. Um, but I think we'll see the beginnings of how we might be able to do that, you know, over, uh, emerging through this year. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm going to I'm going to just deep dive into that one a little bit, because I think um, employee experience and engagement is something that we hear a lot about in, in the corporate world, um, you know, in the tech companies, in the financial services, et cetera, where there's a huge amount of investment to use the technology that's at their fingertips to make that experience of how you do your job easier better faster and 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 the banner of well-being comes in there as well you know absolutely and I've, I've seen some absolutely fantastic examples across different industries but then when I come to healthcare you know as a technologist and as a, a, a futurologist somebody who likes to look forward um I always find it a little bit frustrating and a little bit sad that the people who genuinely need access to some of the technology that can make their lives easier easier we're not very good at doing that right especially in the UK for some reason um you know there are some amazing um, examples of how technology is being used in private healthcare in Romania. Um, you know, there, there is a chain of, of private healthcare facilities across Romania where technology is at the heart of everything that's being done, right from admissions and registration, all the way through the process, right to the very end and discharge. And it's, it's technology that's available in the hands of the people delivering care, but also the patients. Now, why do you think it's so hard for us in the UK and I know this is this is probably a, a tough question to answer, right? But why why is it so hard for us in the UK to actually adopt some of the technology? You know, there are licenses galore that are out there. The NHS has its own share of, of software licenses, et cetera. But we don't really sweat what we've got. You know, we're looking at we're looking forward. We're looking at those next things that are coming. You know, AI is there, co-pilots are there, generative assistants are there. But actually, we're not using the stuff that could make the experience much better for a doctor, or a nurse, or a clinician. So, you know, in in that banner of professionalism and certification how do we attach more value to getting more out of what we've got i i think i mean i'll jump in i, th I think um there's a, there's a positive part to this story in that um you know certainly through my career that the, the single biggest change i've witnessed has been the rise of the clinical voice in the digital space and so i think the degree to which our clinical community and and those you know those digitally capable clinicians, if I can describe them like that, are, are, are driving the agenda in healthcare right now is, is stronger and more positive than it's ever been. So, so for I mean, it'll be for James to perhaps comment on this, but my, my view is for, for innovators trying to access, you know, frontline clinical problems to understand the way in which they can then adapt and change them, that, 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 that opportunity is now greater than it's ever been and access to those individuals is is greater than it's you know it's ever been and actually as a result we are starting to see you know pockets of some really you know super cool stuff uh being developed and things like that i think your your question though is quite pointed because it goes to the heart of you know why can um you know why can a massive organization like the nhs you know the world's sixth biggest employer wh why does it find it hard to be agile enough 
to um, you know truly adopt and scale um, those kind of technologies. And I think you know you, you, we get bogged down in you know a ton of uh, conversations around you know financing or conversations around organisational control or conversations around um, you know who 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 gets the feather in their cap for you know delivering this thing or it gets wrapped up in worry around uh you know data protection maybe or around um you know sort of who, who you know the, the the sort of credit elements of these things so i i kind of think you know it is a very very complex you know ecosystem that you're trying to deliver this stuff into and there are a lot of people out there who are perfectly comfortable with <laughs> with not changing anything <laughs> and, and, and so yet you know, and, and yet, sorry to interrupt, but in Shane's, I'd, I'd like your opinion as well here, actually, because you're, you're hands on in terms of some of this innovation. But the way that we operate in the UK, especially, um, is, is not conducive to giving an employee the best experience that they could have. You know, and, and we know that we have issues with burnout. We have issues with resiliency. We have issues with well-being. And we've got a serious, you know, we've got a distinct lack of, of new recruits coming into this industry, which quite frankly, isn't very good for the future. So, you know, in terms of how do we make it better and how do we balance, you know, um, the the playing field, how do we level the, the, the playing field to make sure that as an industry, we are able to attract more people, we're able to retain more people. And, and, and James, I'd love your opinion here, right? Because you've been on both sides of the fence because you've been in the NHS and now you're on the other side and you're pioneering, you know, innovation. Um, and you get your hands on a lot of this, this, the new technology that's out there. So how do you think we could make a difference? How do you think we can try and help here? I, I think one thing that's definitely helped um, in, in recent times is the rise of roles that are clinical and informatics based. So you look at the CCIO and the CNIO, and I'm still not really convinced there's a huge proliferation of those as standard roles across the country. But the power that they bring in terms of bridging the community of the techies who sometimes historically have liked to shut themselves in a room and decide they know all the answers and don't need to hear from anybody else. And the clinicians who maybe are increasingly frustrated with the techies because they're not listening to, to what they actually need to, to achieve their role. And anybody that's ever done any form of user-centered design would be pulling their hair out because it's the, the stark opposite of that. But to your point, the issue is international in workforce shortage. Um, people deciding to take up um, medical training globally uh, is behind. But there's that then breeds the competition between organisations and the need, not the not the uh, nice to have, to provide a workspace that that drives loyalty and a desire to want to go and work there. And we see more and more NHS trusts and private providers, again, internationally, that put on programs deliberately for clinical staff to get engaged with innovation and research. Um, so they have that extra um, extra pull and extra desire to want to go and, and work there. And let's not be confused or let's not be mistaken and think that it's only other NHS trusts that people are looking to go and work at. There is a huge pull um, from international uh, healthcare providers from Australia to the Middle East, to the US and Europe that are actively advertising and trying to, to tempt people away to, to come and work in those geographies. And 
that is why it's so pivotal now for UK-based NHS trusts to be able to provide um, the same, but they need to be enabled to do so. They need to be given the levers and the leverage they need to be able to attract and retain uh, the staff that they need to be able to deliver those services. Fantastic, absolutely agree. So one last question for me on, on this subject, and then we'll move to data and, and Rachel, because I, I really do want to, to speak to you about that. Um, in terms of, you know, there's a bunch of, of technologies that were always called the emerging technologies yeah. over the last decade or so, um, augmented reality, virtual reality, AI, you know, AI is now sort of branched off on its own. But in, in terms of how that's working, James, around training clinicians and surgeons and remote surgeries, um, you know, we're seeing a, a huge uptake in things like the metaverse, which is actually interesting for healthcare because the metaverse is, is you know, being used quite a lot around mental health and, and treatment of mental health because it's a safe environment. It's a place where patients don't need to show themselves. Um, they can, you know, ease into those conversations where perhaps it could be traumatic or anxious, make them anxious to actually go and speak to somebody about how they're feeling. And, you know, we've seen that in, in pockets that the, the mental uh, health uh, facility is actually using the metaverse quite a lot, yet other areas of, of the NHS are not, um, or, and in healthcare, you know, across the, across the globe. But then there's also sort of VR being used, um, you know, simulating surgeries, helping to train surgeons globally, giving them that community. So, I mean, where do you see that going? Because it's already started. So it's, it, it'd be interesting to figure out, right, what is the next step for that? So it, it should be explosive, but it's not going to be, uh, in my opinion. And that's not because I don't think the technology is there. The technology definitely is there. I think for me, maybe slightly controversially, I don't think the leadership teams have the full grasp of the capability of the technology. If a leadership team for A and other healthcare organisations struggles to log onto the teams or to send an email with an attachment, then they're going to really struggle with understanding the power that the metaverse or virtual reality can bring. And more often than not, it's badged as a plaything and a toy and something mm -hmm. maybe their kids do on the weekend that they bought them for Christmas, um, as opposed to seeing how banking, the military and so many other verticals have absolutely capitalized on the capability of the technology. And private healthcare, again, leaps and bounds ahead in using this um, there's organizations we're working with that have national training workforces that are leveraging this technology and they're having people train uk staff that are based in the us in singapore mm -hmm. in australia and it's shrinking that world geography and bringing everybody together on an equitable stage so yes. for, for me the technology is there is the mind shift that, that needs to change. And you look at the law of diffusion of innovation, we're very much in those, still in that early adopter space um, of these technologies, I think, especially when it comes to virtual and augmented reality. And yeah. some of the price tags, especially when you look at the new Vision Pro that's come out, that's a bit of a, a, a tricky one maybe to fold into a business case, but the most yeah. common of these headsets you can get for three or 400 pounds and, and you can manage them with sufficient fleet management software and, and roll mm -hmm. it out on mass. But um, there definitely for me seems to be buy-in from leadership to, to understand the true traction the technology can provide. I think that's true. James. I think the, 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 the boardrooms have been way behind 
what we've seen in other sectors and in other industries, I think they've they've been really resistant to uh, to the digital challenge. I'm sort of forgiving it on on some levels. They're not really incentivized to 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 be all over it. You know, if you look at the things that you know boards get assessed for, it it very often isn't around innovation and and sort of digital progress. It's a whole heap of other uh, challenges. So they that they can they can sort of be to some extent forgiven slightly for taking their eye off it. But um, but you're dead right. I mean, in in other sectors. People are on the front foot on this um, this agenda, and and generally in health, and certainly in in the NHS, we, we we've we've we haven't been in truth. Um, and I think you know, in a weird way, I think it's been uh, it's probably at one of the lowest places ever at the moment. You're seeing you know you're seeing some very talented people uh, walking off the pitch because they're they're struggling with the to get the you know to get this agenda forward with the leadership that they're you know, that they're working for at the moment. I, th I think it'll come good again. I think, that, you know, these things tend to be in some sort of cyclical trend. Um, and, you know, what will happen is some, you know, brave leaders will get behind some of these projects and, you know, emergent sort of exemplar organisations will start to, you know, will start to appear and and then they will be the ones that everybody will strive to follow and, and understand their journey. But it's um, it's painfully slow at times. It really is. And it's a frustrating situation if you're if you're as you know as, as visionary as you are sitting in an organization with a leadership that is you know with with the mindset that many of us have um you know have, have enjoyed over the years and it's it's interesting because i had one of my students from imperial who set up an ar and vr company tried healthcare couldn't get any leverage and is now working in aviation so it's not just about high-risk industries right it's, you know, some industries that are high risk are taking this up. And I think it's a mindset thing. I completely agree, James. No, it is absolutely. And I think you've given me an idea there, actually, James, for a, a future podcast, right? Um, because the use of VR and augmented reality in defence is huge. And, and actually, you know, normally, if you think about it logically, you wouldn't expect it to be. Yet the the, the, the use and the volume of use around simulations, you know, battlefield formations, um, all of that sort of stuff is absolutely secondary to none. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. So I may well call you back when I uh, get a few defence people on the next one, I think. For sure. I think Andy laid a great seed for that conversation when he used the word incentive. Yes. If if, if the leadership is incentivized, that's where the focus goes. And if they're not measured on it, then they're not incentivized and the attention doesn't go there. Because we are, also... as a system, we're so heavily measured. We've got to do a report, a sit rep, mm -hmm a KPI, an SLA, uh, the amount of bureaucracy that's wrapped around leadership in the system to, to keep feeding the beast in terms of ooh, status updates. Um, I think we're all, we've all trodden that path before. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, one last, one last thing on, the, on that point before we move on is, you know, as a technologist in the industry, I think sometimes it's very frustrating for people like me to sit back and see that even when some of these things are available for folks to come and get their hands on and play around with and see and touch and feel, there's a there's that level of resistance, which is, no, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to go and have a look at this. And I think without truly actually getting your hands on some of the new technology and trying it out, without the pressure of a sales cycle, let's be honest, um, you know, it's secondary to none. You, you don't know what you're missing out on until you try it. And, you know, I'm a firm believer of show and tell. So, you know, I'd encourage everyone out there, if you get the opportunity to go and see some of this technology and, and play with it, please do. Um, and talking about technology and stuff, Rachel, let's move on to wearables. Um, you know, you touched on a point and, and a, you know, it's been mentioned a few times today. 
we expect that the wearables industry is going to continue to grow. It's getting bigger and bigger. Um, it's already been touted as a, a multi-billion or trillion dollar market in the next 10 years. Um, I think the last time I looked at the figures, it was somewhere around 350 plus uh, billion at least. Um, so, you know, that's going to bring a lot of data in. It's going to bring a lot of patients in who are much more educated about their own health. They have an opinion about their own health. So, you know, what does that do to the data field, right? What does that do to the volume of data we've got and how we manage it when, quite frankly, we're not very good in healthcare at managing the data we've already got? That's absolutely true. I mean, data's already pretty much feral. We've got, you know, thousands of systems out there and we're at cognitive load managing it. And we shouldn't be because, you know, if you're recording blood pressure 24 different times in your organisation, you shouldn't really be doing that. So we've already got within you know, organizations for ACS, there's huge variance in how we're recording the same thing. But then you add the apps and wearables um, and you end up with a whole different ball game of thousands of different data types, which you're going to have to, you know, subsume into your organization. And, you know, th to be clear, we're talking about consumer tech in a lot of cases here. If it's personally held records, it's going to be people sharing their data from a whole set of different vendors who store data in, in different formats. And what we've not done here, and Andy touched on this earlier, is, you know, start converging on standards. So if I talk to some of the app developers or the wearable developers, um, they just haven't really been, you know, able to engage with the standards bodies. I don't see anybody represented at the standards meetings from those vendors. Um, and actually, I, I've just bought a load of different tech from China to try and get the data off and have a play with it and get it into open format and get it in together um, just as a you know project of my own. And it, this variability is it's unwarranted variation. And it's not actually industry's fault in a lot of cases because we've not really signaled to them that there are standards, that they can join the standards party, that if we all collaborate on standards, this is going to make it a lot easier. Um, so even this last week, I've been talking to, you know, a couple of the hardware vendors for wearables and apps about how they standardize on healthcare standards to make it easier to, you know, subsume that data into personal health records, into to clinical records. But I think we've got a journey to take. And I do feel um, that there's almost a gulf between the consumer tech industry, which has got part to play, and the medical device industry. And we've got to bridge that gap. And I think that's about welcoming um, you know, everybody into the party around standards and working together. Uh, and that, for me, is really important in 2024 onward. Hey, Ray, do you think they do you think they want to? I mean, do you think those vendors want to yes. participate in that yes. way? You know, because we've seen in, in, in sort of electronic patient records and space like that, where it's sort of been in their interest to to have proprietary standards and kind of lock data into their system, make it hard for you to move and change. So. I'm sort of encouraged that you sound so positive about, you know, vendors in other spaces, perhaps being a bit more, you know, open minded to open standards. Well, yeah, because if you think about stuff that you can buy on the high street, let's just put it that way. You know, I've spoken to three of those vendors in the last few months and they're thinking, how do we participate? You know, it's a bigger market share for them. If a patient can buy um, a consumer tech and know that the data is going in and some of these things, you know, can actually do clinical grade ECGs, whatever else, you know, I've got a couple of vendors that can do that one that's certified in the UK now. Not all of the vendors are that interested, but there are some big names who are really interested. However, 
it's going to be worth their while because they've got a you know a technical shift to do that will cost them and so we need to meet them halfway i think as health systems and really have that dialogue because they've obviously got their existing data models and everything else that's going to have to be uplifted to be you know part of what we uh, put into our record systems um, and they've also got a huge knowledge gap as well. If you talk to some of these vendors about terminology or about, you know, other things, they've just not really been, um, you know, educated on that stuff or welcome to that party. So certainly, you know, sitting in with the other standards bodies now, I really want to get a much wider family of people involved so that they're literate in this and they feel confident with it as well. Yeah. And Rach, just, just, just on that in terms of standards, I mean, you know, when it comes to healthcare, typically... We talk a lot about fire, um, you know, recently over the last few years, there's been a lot more discussion around open air um, yeah. and, and making sure that, that we have open standards. And and yet, you know, conversely, when we talk about challenges in healthcare, we always talk about interoperability. Now, we yeah. know that, you know, one of the solutions to, to the path towards resolution there is very much around open standards, open platforms. Yeah. So how, how do we how do we actually, you know, um, address the issue in terms of some of those younger generations that are coming through, even the tech companies, quite frankly, you know, where we we develop solutions and, and fire is always there as a plugin or as an API. How do we get it? How do we get that drumbeat going? How do we get the message out a little bit better to say, actually, there are a number of different standards and these are, you know, the constraints or actually the benefits of each? And I think actually we've got a, a family of standards that are completely complementary. That's my view. And certainly I was in with the JIC, which is the kind of overarching umbrella for all the standards um, back in January. And there's a couple of things. One thing is about interoperability. So people don't realize there's two levels of interoperability. Fire is absolutely brilliant. I've been working with Graham Grief, the founder of Fire, for transferring data and simple storage. And, and that is, you know, traditional interoperability. But then you've got semantic interoperability where Data is the same in different places and can be joined together without any loss. So just a, a pretty scary figure between EMRs. If you interoperate data between EMRs of different vendors, you only get 22% that's directly comparable. We need to change that. So we need to sem semantically harmonize our systems, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, the, the whole piece around data, I think we've got the job to do from the standards bodies to provide blueprints, by the articulation, but actually, hopefully, I've got a paper coming out shortly with Graham Grieve from Fire and from the OMOP guys to talk about how all of those standards work together. We need to publish more of that so people can yeah. put it in their hand and go, okay, I know how these standards work together. Um, but from my perspective, we've got everything we need. We just need to get more information out, more education out there so people mm -hmm. can understand how to do a target architecture or you know how to actually get systems working together. Yeah, and we're seeing it. I mean, we're seeing the change in the law, aren't we, Rachel? I mean, that's the yeah. other thing that's happening is that, you know, legally, this is going to become an obligation. Now, how do you actually apply that obligation to, you know, massive incumbent vendors whose software is deeply embedded into, you know, into the current architecture, I think is is going to be a challenge. It just it just will be because it's just it's you're trying to kind of retrofit uh, things that might be too tough. But certainly in the way that you've just described it, then, Rachel, applying to you know, new entrance to new innovation yeah. to the new landscape that, that that is emerging and, you know, and doing it in a way that is collegiate, collaborative, you know, try, in the spirit of everybody working together on the stuff that makes sense for them all to work together on. I think that's a great thing. And if you've just happened to have a bit of a, 
bit of legislation stick uh, behind it as well, then then you know that probably encourages that to happen. I still think it's a long journey to get to to the place you know you're sort of pushing us towards Emma because um, you know that that incumbent architecture that we've you know that we've that we've developed and built is um you know a lot of that is going to be around for quite a long time certainly with the, mm. with the you know the budgets the and it needs it needs to be more than vanity doesn't it andy as well like is it ticking a box just to say that we're interoperable or we integrate and just sharing very basic or minimal information and making it tricky even to get that far so the legislation needs to cover it in depth and not allow that that wiggle room and loophole to say, oh, we've turned on a couple of HL7 interfaces, off you go and have fun. But it, it doesn't actually deliver the depth of comparable data that Rach is talking about there to actually do anything of any intelligence or value then with. Yeah, and well, the, exactly. Yeah, the interesting thing, I think, is it's carrot and stick, as you said, Andy. But also part of the carrot is if we all get to a place where the data, you know, can be semantically harmonized and we can get a longitudinal record for a patient digital twin whatever else there's a whole market for these vendors to upsell with ai with advanced intelligence with more utility which then helps us address our skill shortage and gaps so actually we will get further faster together if we do this and we do have to incentivize i think some of the vendors we're gonna to have to support them in taking this this is not about us you know um, just saying you, you're going to have to standardise your data and leaving them to it. I think it, it's a dialogue. But for me, you know, unwarranted variation in data causes unwarranted variation in care, which causes harm. So at the end of the day, there's a moral kind of obligation to, to move towards this as well. Absolutely. OK, I think we've done remarkably well in not talking about the elephant in the room so far. So well done to everybody and, and well done to me for not bringing it up, but I, I can't not bring it up now. So let's talk about AI. Um, you know, I, I think we, we can't ignore it. Um, I do find it amusing sometimes to think back to the last 12 months for me has very much been that AI has become mass market. You know, everybody, it's a term that everybody's got used to. It's literally been rammed down our throats. It's, you know, the marketing machines behind um, every company doing AI have done fantastic stellar jobs in the last 12 months. But quite frankly, AI has been around for much longer than a year. Um, you know, there are different forms. And when we think about trends and priorities in, in healthcare from a technology perspective, you know, we're already hearing that, you know, telemedicine, you know, 2.0, 3.0 is already on the horizon. AI is powering it it's going to take it even further it's going to get bigger and better robotics you know again the use of augmented reality virtual reality in in starting to bring um remote surgeries together making sure that the experience is available for those critical surgeries as and when needed you know shorting the consultation times around surgeries etc um but let's talk about let's talk about ai and data Rach, right Let, let's let's start there you know that to me there's two types of data there is real patient data that we collect that we want to try and do some analytics on in the future. And we want to try and get better so we can move towards this model of predictive and precision medicine, which is, you know, utopia. But then there's also um, synthetic data. You know, there's all of the stuff in, in the background around how we do clinical trials faster. How do, how, how do we actually do research faster? How do we make sure that we've got the right level of data and volume of data to test against? So from your perspective, have you seen AI being used in, in, in those scenarios? And, you know, what's your opinion? Where do you think it's going to go? Is it, is it going to be successful? 
So I think, you know, synthetic data is incredibly important and I have seen it used to actually allow, say, life science companies to see if a population is suitable for a trial. I've seen it used for training AI. I've seen it used to actually create um, synthetic populations that have got the right, you know, demographics. And there are about five companies now doing some really great stuff in healthcare synthetic data. And of course, the privacy side of this is really important because there's no real human in that data, but it has the same statistical sort of, you know, attributes as the population or the population you would want to run it on. Actually, one last example that I worked on was around hospital planning and synthesizing populations over time to actually look at what a facility would need um, to be shaped like over five, 10 years as the population changes. So this stuff is really important and it uses, you know, elements of um, AI and data science to actually manipulate that data. But for us, it gives us far better planning tools. It gives us far better assurance around um, some of the AI uh, training. So, for example, if you take an AI that's working really well over one population and then you can synthesize another population's data, you can test to see if it's going to be effective or there are groups that are you know, going to have inequities within that population. So for me, synthetic data, again, has taken off in other industries and in financial services, it's huge. In military, it's huge. Um, I think healthcare are really going to get their heads around it in the next year or two. But actually, I'm seeing Australia and other places use it more heavily than the UK. And I'm hoping that uh, the UK does, you know, start moving forward with synthetic data and it becomes part of the lexicon because really it's something that um, it can be a great asset to us and it improves safety and quality as well, especially with AI. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit of the fear of the unknown, isn't there? We're, we're, we're very reluctant and resistant in, in the UK, especially to try and adopt new technologies and new approaches because we don't know them so we're not familiar yeah. um but actually i think you know we we miss out generally as an industry on some of the magic that can be achieved you know just by going and trying something and yeah. you know with synthetic data with trials with again you know from james's perspective around an innovation um mindset failing fast is a great thing you know as as long as you are doing something in a safe environment it's absolutely perfectly fine to do something and then throw it away and say it didn't work let's move on to the next idea because that's how you innovate that's how you get to the next best thing right um yeah. anyway um let me andy i want to come back to you about something actually i i know that you have spent um a good few years you know banging the the, the you know, increasing the drumbeat, especially around sort of professional certification for CIOs through your work with Chime, et cetera. Um, so, you know, where do you see the curriculum and the syllabus changing for CIOs and CNIOs, et cetera, who are out to get a certification, especially around leadership? Um, you know, because leadership uh, courses and programs generally focus on key leadership attributes and characteristics. They're preparing emerging leaders and, and active leaders on things like like empathy and decision-making, problem-solving. Um, and in healthcare, there's always a very specific flavour of that type of certification. Do you think that there needs to be more technology focus in those syllabuses? And, and if, if yes, how do you see us actually encouraging the healthcare population to not be afraid of tech um, and start to embrace it? Um, well, the, the, yeah, I mean, the short answer is definitely yes. I mean, I, it's, it's, you know, it's impossible to, to run a you know, modern healthcare um, environment without, you know, without a heavy reliance on the technology that underpins, 
you know the efficiency and the delivery of that care at the moment and and i think um you know there was a time right at the beginning of my career when you know when the it went down or the system went down and everybody just sort of shrugged and and carried on operating in a you know in a perfectly normal way we're we're we're, we're way past that now um and and the ability of um you know of technology to hamper the delivery of healthcare if it's not working uh, well is um is you know is significant therefore by extension the need for the people that are responsible for its delivery the leadership of um of, you know digital transformation programs and such like um you know in my view and I've, you know i've held this view for a long time need to be on the same level of professional footing as the other professionals they work alongside whether those are uh you know in medicine doctors and so on or, or nurses or midwives or um, or in accounts or in law or in all of the other you know you know true professions um that that, that people are uh, are within and 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 really for a couple of you know reasons one one is that um you know true professionals benefit from an ongoing continual professional development requirement throughout their career that is how they stay registered as a professional so whatever discipline they're in they they are required to stay on top of uh you know what's current and so to come to your point around um you know the, the the emergence of ai and this this absolute tsunami of opportunity that is that is landing on the shore right now then of course we ought to expect our um our digital leaders to be competent and capable of uh of understanding and um you know and driving that you know that agenda forward and i think that's the that's the bit of the challenge i've, I've sat in a room with um a good friend of mine, Russ Branzell, the chief exec at Chime, uh, a few times over the last uh, few years. And he does this, you know, fabulous talk about uh, the fact that most of us that are in leadership positions right now, um, you know, the kind of 45 and over generation, I guess, in in in, in, in a, um, were born into and have lived and um, have sort of had successful careers in the information age, in the third industrial revolution age. And our and our thinking and our minds are conditioned by, you know, by by that environment. And um, and of course now we're entering this, you know, the world that you know James occupies. This this sort of super agile, you know, major sort of you know opportunity to do things in different ways and to be you know more efficient and things like that. But it but it is different to the world that most of you know most of us traditional leaders of. Uh, you know grown up with and I think you know we need we need help we need to help those folks in understanding the opportunity not to be scared of it to be capable enough to lead on the agenda and frankly at times to just get out of the way um, you know because actually you know it, it's our old-fashioned thinking that will be yeah. some of the things that will hold back you know some of the innovation is that we'll be demanding um you know traditional sort of project approach when in truth that is not how you deploy this stuff anymore so you know i'm i'm passionate about the idea that we move towards uh, a digital health and care profession but i think that that will need to be an increasingly agile move in that direction to 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 take yes. advantage of the you know the technologies that are in front of us yeah and and uh, you know another question for for all of you uh, you know let, let please chip in and, and and say what you think here but you know, if we think back again to this, the issue that we've got globally around um, the reduction in, in workforce and, and talent, you know, we, we seem to have a segregation, two groups of people. We have a, a much younger generation that's coming in that is tech savvy, understands, you know, smartphones, digits and gadgets and, and wearables, et cetera. 
And then we have uh, a slightly older generation that's perhaps been through the ranks over 20, 30 years, um, and they prefer to do things manually. Now, I'm a firm believer and an advocate of reverse mentoring. I, I, I learn a lot, you know, when I go and speak to people who are completely different to me. We're all in different, you know, areas of, of, of roles and seniority. Um, how do we use tech and how do we use this, the, you know, the, the, how do we use it to perhaps manipulate an environment where we learn from each other a bit more so that, because we've got some amazing talent, you know, that those people who have been in healthcare over 20, 30, 40 years, et cetera, you know, that richness of information, problem solving, decision making, how you actually treat patients is something that a junior doctor or a junior nurse is not going to be able to bring with them, you know, straight away. So how do we do this swap of we'll give you some some tools and some, you know, some some skills around how to manage tech and, and then let us take the uh, the knowledge that you've got, you know? My immediate reaction to that, Emma, is that's su it's such a big one to solve. And mm -hmm. the first thought that comes to mind is creating the capacity, the culture and the environment that fosters and incubates that kind of approach. And I think many have tried um, over time to, to drive that. But I think for me, it starts with the capacity. Uh, Andy mentioned earlier in terms of boardroom and leadership priorities. Uh, we spoke about incentivization. And unless there is the capacity and the funding that's needed to create the the, the workforce to, to take up that slack and capacity, then I think creating that kind of environment of cross-pollination of skill sets and experience will continue to be a challenge um, because the, the system continues to trade on goodwill goodwill that is rapidly running out and then to to ask for investment of further time and effort is a bit of a push but i do think there are organizations that are putting in place things that help with that so there's various mentor and mentee programs uh that, that exist i i mentor too as part of the south london digital health program um that is is wonderful for me to be involved in and i think maybe that's the route to the sharing of of time and skill sets because I give of my time freely because I was given time when I was learning. I think there's many that do that and perhaps uh, a greater investment in that approach uh, might be uh, something that warrants further investigation. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. I, I love that sort of, you know, passing on the oral piece around how to use this and exciting people about the art mm -hmm. that possible. Um, I think for me, culture, as you said, James, is actually really key to this. You know, we need the space to do this. We need psychological safety. We need permission. But the other thing in my experience, I've not really had a problem working with older clinicians. Um, because if you create the right environment, um, quite often they're coming from a, a perspective of fear or contempt or whatever else, and you need to disarm that. And then if you can give them hands-on experience with things, so, you know, laying out a room full of the art of the possible and explore it together. They get curious, right? They get curious about how they could go home on time or how they will not have to key stuff in when they go home. And it's like, let's talk about that in the context of the capability we've got. And so the user-centered design piece here is really important because there's a whole set of skills around the dialogue that you need and how you bring people in and get them in the right kind of mindset to be a stakeholder in that, you know, reimagining what we're, we're going to do to deliver care.
Um, so I think there's a lot of the softer stuff, which comes back to culture as well, because you do need to feel safe in that environment to do it. And you do need to have the, the resources and time to be part of that. So I think we need to make space for it. That's my view. Yeah, I think one of the things we'll, we, we ought to do as well to help this, and I see pockets of this, is is champion those organisations globally that have that have made this leap, you know, sort of voluntarily and have actually transformed the way that their workforce think and work, you know, across all of those generations, um, you know, really successfully. I'm thinking, um, you know, certainly uh, Rachel and I have, you know, sat in rooms and listened to people like Aaron Jones from Sydney, uh, you know, talk about the way Sydney Health District have gone about transforming the way they they work and operate right across the, you know, the thousands of people that work in their organisation, delivering, you know, a ton of benefit at, 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 you know, really marginal cost, not very expensive at all, in truth, um, just by doing things differently, um, you know, again and again and again. And I think, you know, I could imagine if you if you had a route full of uh, hospital chief execs in the UK listening to, you know, listening to the story from from Sydney, that they would be alive to the to the to the opportunity because it's it's it's. It's just not that hard in truth it, it's a you know it's not that expensive it's not that difficult but you have got to start kind of doing it um and and, and walk that road and I, so i i'm i'm a big fan of finding the organizations that have that have been brave enough to do this you know off their own bat and and giving them you know putting them on soapboxes and allowing them to tell the story yeah and, and as they say the first step on any journey is always the hardest step you know um the rest of it actually once you've taken that first step and started the rest of it will come. So, yeah, thoroughly agree with that. Um, I think, look, we're, we're almost up at, at the hour. And whilst I could happily sit here and talk to all of you for the rest of the day, I'm pretty sure you want to get back to your Fridays. So um, let's finish on, on, on a slightly different note. Um, we'll do a bit of a rapid fire. So, OK, no prep for this. James, favourite drink? Favourite drink? Oh, yeah. goodness me. Uh, my first thing that comes to my mind is don't say anything alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> my favourite drink, I'll probably go for a lovely bourbon. Uh, I'm into my Elijah Craig at the moment, small batch bourbon. Interesting. Okay. Um, Rachel, uh, favourite track? Favourite track? Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, that's a really difficult one, but I've recently been re-listening to James. So anything by James, it brings back my teenage years. So, yeah, probably um probably gold mother or something like that oh sit down is that james is it yeah I, i'm not that keen on that one andy uh <laughs> seven or born of frustration or something like that one of the james tracks because they're on rotation for me at the moment excellent fabulous okay andy um night owl or morning bird uh morning definitely out early dog 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 walking at seven this morning yeah, okay. much more fun. I can cling on into the evening, don't be wrong. And um, I have been known to with with all of you. <laughs> oh yeah, I've seen Andy make make it make oh, it. Oh yeah. yeah, I have, I have as well. Okay, yeah. most important question in the universe, and this one's probably a little bit risky. Toilet roll. Which way do you put the toilet roll on the holder, and which way is the correct way? Is the paper facing out, or is it fa facing in? Facing towards you for sure. It has to. I I to. actively flip it round if it's not <laughs> doing that. It, it grinds my gears. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, he's well, got a look of disbelief on his face. He's like, honestly, seriously. I didn't realise it was OCD podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 
I don't mind. I don't mind. I'll take it as it goes. I'm, I'm just thrilled somebody else has um, put it in there for me. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> and on that note, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up. But um, genuinely, um, thank you all very much from the the bottom of my heart. Um, you know, there were lots of options around this first session, and whilst I could, you know, happily speak to any individual of you and and fill an hour or, or more. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure actually that we we had a diverse set of thoughts going on and, and some interesting dialogue. So thank you all for making the time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you all on here. I will definitely be coming back and pulling you in for future sessions. Um, you know, we've got a few ideas here around fourth industrial revolution, uh, using defense and, and VR and, and their use cases. And Rachel, you know, synthetic data alone, I think, is is a subject we could, you know, dive into deeply. But um Huge thank you. It's always a pleasure to be in your company. Um, and I hope that, um, you know, we can do a little bit of good and, and get some thought processes ticking off in, in the uh, healthcare industry. So um, thank you. No, thank you. Thank great. You. Yeah, thank you. This is the Healthcare Activist podcast from the Fellows Technical Advisory Group of BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT.